Well, this morning we are in our fourth week of our series, The Return of the King. We're studying the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And last week, uh, Pastor Chris taught us out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. How many of you enjoyed hearing from Pastor Chris last week? Wasn't he wonderful? He was great. I already booked him for next year. He's coming back next November. He was so fantastic. And uh, the day afterwards, Pastor Chris and I were hanging out. He didn't have to fly home until Tuesday, so we got to spend some time together. Pastor Chris is Jamaican. I don't think he mentioned that in his sermon, but he's Jamaican. And um, he actually calls himself a Jafakan because he wasn't born in Jamaica. He was born here, but he's Jamaican. So he said the people who were born in Jamaica call the people who are Jamaican that were born here Jafakans. And so uh, we, we were spending some time in Syracuse, and I had to take him to the different food places. That's my pastoral response responsibility. And uh, so we went to Dinosaur and Doloros and different places like that. And uh, at one point during the day, he was saying that in the Caribbean Pentecostal culture, the watch night service is a big deal. Now, watch night service is a service that happens on December 31st, New Year's Eve. And Trinity historically had watch night services in the past. We don't have them any longer. But in the Caribbean culture, he said it's so big. It's as big as the Easter service. So he said, he was kind of saying, it doesn't matter if you've gone to church your whole year. You're, if you're Caribbean and you grew up in a Pentecostal church, you're going to be in church on New Year's Eve. He's like, they go to church New Year's Eve, and then after midnight, they go to the club. So, but, you know, and when he was talking about this, it made me think of uh, my growing up and going to watch night services and fraternity, a watch night service involved dinner together. Everybody would bring food. We'd have some food. We'd play some games and we'd end the night kind of worshiping God and praying and singing into the new year. And uh, I remember there was one year where we watched this film and it was like a 1970s end time film. It was called A Thief in the Night. And it was all about the second coming of Jesus and the rapture and people being left behind, and it was like really dramatic, and if I'm honest, a little bit traumatic, and uh, I just remember being terrified about the rapture and terrified about Jesus coming back, and I remember that year, my New Year's resolution was don't get left behind. <laughs> this year, don't, don't get left behind. So this morning, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus, and uh, we might think we know what it will mean on that day, but the question I really want us to lean into together this morning is what does it mean on this day? What does it mean today? What does that day mean for this day? And now remember, Paul spent a very limited amount of time with this young church in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul had opposition arise, and he had to run for his life. And so Paul had to leave these, this church in Thessalonica actually before he wanted to leave them. So he had limited time with them. He didn't get to teach them everything that he wanted. And apparently, one of the things that he wasn't able to give them a full teaching on was the second coming of Christ, because they were very confused about it. And Paul's uh, travel mate, Timothy, his spiritual son, traveled back to Thessalonica to get a report on how they were doing. He came back to Paul, who was in Corinth, and he said to Paul, there is one issue. Well, there's more than one, but here's one of the issues. They're really um, losing their joy because people are dying, believers are dying, and they think that the believers who die before Jesus returns are going to miss out on the benefits of Christ's return. And so Paul takes the time to write in this passage and provides the church in Thessalonica with a fuller understanding of the promise of Christ's return, but also not just the promise, but the practical implications of Christ's return. So let's look at this together. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Paul says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed. He's saying, I don't want you to be in the dark on this. I don't want you confused on this. I want you to know the truth. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is a term he used to describe those who had died. 
that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise First, now Paul here is trying to um, alleviate their fears that the dead in Christ are going to miss out on the blessings of the second coming. He's not really primarily concerned with talking about the order of things as much as he's trying to affirm to them the dead will not be left out. Verse 17, then, when we, then we who are alive, who are left, those who are here when Christ returns, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Eschatology is the study of end time events. And when it comes to eschatology, what people believe about what's going to happen at the end of the world, there's lots of debate, lots of discussion, lots of differences, and lots of disagreement. I want to try to help us out a little bit with that this morning, simply by answering the question, what does the church, capital C, the church historically agree on when it comes to the return of Christ? So what does the church, the people of God, historically, what do all churches agree on when it comes to the second coming of Christ? And don't blink, because it's not a super long list. There's really four things that all churches agree on. Number one, that the basis of our hope we call it the blessed hope, that the basis of our hope is not wishful thinking, not theory, not philosophy, but the basis of our hope is the historical life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus walked out of his tomb on Easter Sunday, what it meant was that the resurrection power that Jesus Christ experienced on Easter is now available to all who believe in him. And so our great hope that someday we will be raised to new life, whether we are remaining or whether we have already passed away, our great hope is based on the fact that Jesus lived, died, and resurrected from the dead. Okay? That's, all churches agree on that. Number two, all churches also agree that Jesus will return that he will come back, and that when he returns, he will not come like he came the first time, like a baby in a manger, but he will return as a king to reign and to rule. All churches agree on that. Number three, all churches agree that when he returns, the dead in Christ and the alive in Christ will both benefit from his return. They will both be raised to new life. And then the fourth thing that all churches agree when it comes to the second coming of Christ is that at that point, we will be with the Lord forever. Okay? So that's kind of where we all agree. Now, where does the church disagree? Pretty much everywhere else. <laughs> Pretty much everything else. And I'm not going to go into depth on it too much this morning, but there's three significant camps in Christian eschatology, and they really divide over the issue of the millennial reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the division really comes down to two major questions. One, is it a literal thousand years or is it a symbolic thousand years? And two, are we already in it or is it yet to come? That's kind of where it divides. And so some of this, some of, I realize for some of you, just endure these next two minutes because it's maybe not of great interest to you, but, but I feel like we should talk about this. The three major camps are there's premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial, and they divide really on those two questions that I previously mentioned. 
The Christian church also divides pretty strongly over the conversation on the rapture. Will the rapture be a physical, actual event, or is Paul describing a symbolic uh, reuniting of a returning king and his people? So uh, this may be a surprise to some of you, but not all believers believe in a physical, actual rapture of the church. Even within some of these camps, so like even within the premillennial camp, for example, there's different camps. So specifically to the timing of the rapture. So within the premillennial view, there's those who believe in pre-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, and post-tribulation rapture. My, one of my favorite professors in Bible college said that he believed in pan-millennialism and pan-tribulation, or pan, uh, yeah, pan-trib, what he meant was that it will all pan out in the end. <laughs> it will all pan out in the end. And I thought that was both helpful and not helpful. Um, and there are, there are many other variations and key issues. I'm not going to go into it right now. Why is there so much disagreement? Why is there so many different opinions? And I think really it's because it's a great mystery. We're talking about futuristic things that are yet to come that are really presented to us in Scripture in some of the most difficult, dense passages to interpret, whether it's Daniel's prophetic visions, whether it's the apocalyptic genre that we find in the book of Revelation, whether it's some of Paul's writings. You try to, we try to thread things together, but it's very difficult. These passages are very dense. Even the passage we read this morning, which seemed pretty simple at face value, when I studied it this week, it is loaded with references from the Psalms of the Ascents, from Jewish history. It's loaded with apocalyptic language, symbolic language. So, so it's very difficult to make of, and that's why there's so many different views. And again, I'm not going to dive in on it this morning because... A, I'm not, this is not an area of expertise for me. If, you, if you're hoping that I, it was, it just simply isn't. Uh, I understand generally the views, but I'm not an expert on eschatology at all. But the other reason why we're not going to dive into it is because I can assure you, this is not why Paul wrote this passage. Paul did not write these words to the church in Thessalonica in order to shape doctrine on the timing of the rapture, the location of the rapture, the, any of that. That's not why Paul wrote this. Paul wrote this because he needed to encourage their hearts and give them hope that those who have already died in Christ will benefit from the second coming of Christ. And so one of the most important things of being a good student of Scripture and handling Scripture is always asking the question, what did the author intend with this? It doesn't mean that this passage can't speak secondarily to other issues, but it does not primarily speak to that. So we're not going to dive into it too much. I do want to say this before we kind of get to the meat of what I want to say. There is a danger with eschatology. Some of you probably like eschatology more than me. There is a little danger. This week we're going to gather with family for Thanksgiving, and next month we're going to gather for Christmas, and we're going to have all these holiday gatherings, and I hope yours is wonderful and blessed. And by the way, if you're alone this week, uh, if you don't have plans on Thursday, let us know. We just don't think it's acceptable that anybody in our church family would be alone on Thanksgiving. There are people in this church who would love nothing more than to open up their table to you. So please, let us know. And if you know of somebody who's going to be alone that won't speak up for themselves, tell on them. Tell on them so that we can, we can uh, at least invite them. Um, but when we have these events, these Thanksgiving gatherings, these holiday gatherings, how many of you know that sometimes they can be more stressful than fun? They can be a little stressful. And a lot of times the stress revolves around the details. So here's the big question you got to decide first. When and where are we going to gather? Christmas is, is tough, right? Because you got Christmas Eve, you got Christmas Day, and especially once you get married and you got parents who want you at their house, and they want, right, you kind of get pulled this way and the other. And, and by the way, by way of announcement, one of the ways we're going to try and make Christmas maybe a little easier for you this year is we're going to actually offer two Christmas Eve services this year. 
We're going to offer one on Christmas Eve, which is obviously the traditional one. But we're also going to offer one on Christmas Eve Eve. So I think we have a slide up here. December 23rd and December 24th, we're going to offer Christmas Eve services, both of those nights, identical services. I promise you one will not be better than the other, um, but uh, whichever one helps you out the most. But whenever we schedule holiday things, we try to figure out when and where, who's bringing what, um, everybody's got their opinions. Don't let her make the mashed potatoes. Hers are lumpy, right? Don't let them make the cook. T- don't let them cook in turkey. Last time they cooked the turkey, they overcooked it. The breast meat was dry, right? So everybody's trying to like, you're, and by the time you get together at Thanksgiving or by the time you get together at Christmas, you're so stressed out by the details that sometimes you miss the whole point of the gathering, which is just to be together, one of my concerns with eschatology is that there, we can get so stressed out on the details, they're not insignificant, but we can get so stressed out on the details that we miss the point. And what is the point of Jesus' second coming? The point really is this, that Jesus will keep his promise and that Jesus will be with his people. That's the point of the second coming of Christ. Jesus is going to keep his promise, and on that day we're going to see him, however it happens, he's going to return and we're going to say he kept his promise to us. And secondly, on that day, we're going to realize we are his people and we will be with him forever. So be careful not to miss the points in your pursuit of the details. Now, am I making a case for ignoring eschatology? No, not at all. If that's your passion, if that's your interest, go after it. Read the scriptures, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Understand your view. Here's another big deal. Understand the other views. Understand them well enough that it's a respectful understanding of what they actually believe. But no matter where you land on this, the return of Christ, as far as the details, always have proper humility about your stance. Because someday I think we're all going to realize we were all a little bit wrong. <laughs> we all were a little bit wrong in different ways. So have proper humility and have grace towards those who think differently. Because here's what you'll find, is that there are people on different sides of the eschatological spectrum that love Jesus just like you do. And are committed to faithful interpretation of Scripture just like you are, but they're just not committed to your interpretation of Scripture. This week on Twitter, there's a man named Bob Goff, who's a wonderful Christian man and author, and he tweeted this out. He said, don't let being right talk you out of being kind. That's probably good advice as we get together as families this week, right? (laughs) Don't let being right talk you out of being kind. All right, so what is this text actually about? And what this text is actually about is how that future day impacts this present day. And there's three things that I want us to learn from this text together this morning. Three things, three ways that the second coming of Jesus Christ helps us out today, okay? Number one, for Christians, we endure our sorrow differently. If the second coming of Christ is true, if it's sure, then we endure our sorrow differently. We have sorrow and we grieve, but Paul instructed them, I want you to know about the second coming of Christ because I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. Now on Pastor's Appreciation Day, let me share with you my least favorite thing about being a pastor. My least favorite thing about being a pastor is doing funerals. It's the worst part of serving as a pastor. And over my years of serving here as Trinity, I've served and led some tremendously painful funeral services. Here's what I've learned. When there's a belief in the room in the second coming of Christ, the grief is a little bit different than when there's no hope and no belief. And when people gather around a casket and gather in a room to remember the life of someone who will never come back on this side of eternity, and they don't believe in the second coming of Christ, and they don't think that there's any hope for heaven or reuniting or being together again, it's so heavy. 
It's so dark, and there's such a sense of finality to it because all your memories with that person are behind you. But how many of you know that if you place your faith and hope in Jesus and you believe in the second coming of Christ, then the people that you've lost, the people that you love, your memories are not just behind you, they're still before you. Those people that have gone before you, you still have memories to make with them. You don't just have to think about the memories that you made with them because someday you will be with them again because at the second coming of Christ, both the dead in Christ and those who remain will be together in his presence. And so Paul says, grieve, yes, grieve, fully grieve because Christians are fully aware of the brokenness in this world. We should grieve intensely, deeply, and honestly. We don't hide our grief. We don't bury our grief behind a bunch of platitudes and a bunch of scripture verses. We grieve when sorrow comes our way. In fact, in John chapter 11, John 11, 35, Jesus, shortest verse in the Bible, so if you have trouble memorizing scripture, this is is your scripture. John 11, 35, Jesus wept. And what's amazing about that verse is that in that story, his friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus knew full well that in just a matter of moments, he was going to turn that funeral into a fiesta. He was about to make that place party because he was going to call Lazarus out of the tomb. But even knowing that, he was so engaged presently in the sorrow and the grief, he was actually enraged in his spirit towards what death, sin, and Satan does in our lives, that he wept. And if Jesus wept knowing that in just moments he was going to call Lazarus out of the grave, then we weep even knowing about the second coming of Christ. We grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. In 2017, uh, our church and my family walked through a very difficult season. If you're new to the church, you're not maybe fully aware of it. But in 2017, uh, my dad, who was the founding pastor of this church, passed away. Eight months later, my little brother Joshua passed away suddenly. And in this difficult season of heaviness and grief and brokenness, you know what I found myself thinking about more than I ever had before in my life? Heaven. I thought about heaven all the time. I committed myself to studying the text and asking the question, what does the Bible actually say about heaven? And and it was just amazing because it provided my heart with so much comfort and so much joy, even in the midst of sorrow. And those were dark seasons, dark days, but our lives were not without hope. And when you believe in the second coming of Christ, when you walk through grief and you will grieve, you might have moments that feel hopeless, but you ultimately not lose your deepest hope your deepest joy. The second coming of Christ helps us to endure. It helps us to endure sickness because Jesus is going to return with healing in his wings. It helps us to endure suffering because Jesus says on that day there will be no more pain. It helps us to endure regret because Jesus says there will be no more shame. It helps us to endure uh, sadness because on that day in Revelations, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. It helps us to endure the struggle because Jesus Christ is a victorious king who is returning to reign and rule, and we will reign and rule with him. It helps us to endure current events and politics because ultimately Jesus is the only king, and he's the one who sits on the throne, and it's his kingdom that will reign forever, not the kingdom of America, not anything that's happening in Europe. It's Jesus' kingdom that will reign forever and it helps us to endure even death because on that day we will be raised to new life we don't have to lose our joy in the in-between when we know the ending of the story yesterday my mom and myself and my two oldest girls we went to the Syracuse basketball game someone in our church gifted us four tickets eight row eight rows from the court and uh, great seats and Syracuse won 97 to 46 
which I think is, makes a great argument for the idea that we should get those tickets every game because, <laughs> I mean, obviously we were part of that victory, 97 to 46. And so in that time, uh, we're sitting there. But anytime I'm at a Syracuse game and enjoying the sport, one thing that I always think back to is 2003 when Syracuse won the national championship with Carmelo Anthony. And uh, that particular Final Four, myself and my mom and my dad and some of you, we were in the country of Cuba doing ministry. And Cuba is about the worst place in the world to be if you want to know what's happening in America because you don't, get any, you don't get any American media over in Cuba. And so we missed the Final Four game, and we missed the championship game where Syracuse beat Kansas. Now, this was right about when DVR was starting to become available. So one of my good friends who had DVR, he said, hey, I know you're going to miss the finals. I'll DVR the game for you so that when you get back to America, you can watch. And so I get back to America. I already know what happened. I know that Syracuse won. I know I, I read all the articles. I, I know what happened, but I still wanted to watch the game. So I sit down to watch the game. And if you remember this game in 2003, Syracuse jumped out to a really big lead on Kansas. Jerry McNamara hit six three-pointers in the first half. They were, like, up by a ton at halftime. But then the second half, Kansas, who had a great team, they began to chip away at the lead. And by the end of the game, it was actually very stressful. And it came down to a final block shot by Hakeem Warwick. And as I was watching the game play out, as it got closer and closer, and it looked like Syracuse was losing their grasp on the game and losing control of the game, you know, I never panicked. I never lost my joy. I never got anxious. Because I already knew that no matter what happens between now and then, when it's all said and done, Carmel Anthony is going to climb up a ladder. He's going to cut that rope. Jim Beheim's going to hold up that championship trophy, and Syracuse is going to go home national champions no matter what happens as I'm watching this game because I knew the ending. As Christians, we have a unique resource that no matter what we're walking through, no matter what threatens our joy, we know the ending, that someday Christ will return. He will make all things right. All the sad things will come untrue. Every injustice will be brought to the light and everything will be made right. And if we can keep our hearts focused on that truth, we will endure our sorrow differently. Secondly, this text teaches us that the second coming of Christ helps us to engage our world presently. I know that's a little clunky of a statement, so I'll unpack it. Engage our world presently. There's a big mistake Christians make sometimes when it comes to eschatology. They, they, they're just waiting around to get out of here. That's not what God's called us to do. That's not his mission for you. God's mission for you is not get saved and then wait around for him to return, hoping you can get out of here. God has a work for us to do. And we need to be careful that we're not so focused on that day, what God's going to do on that day, that we miss what God wants to do on this day. He wants us to engage our world presently. Implicit in the promise that Jesus will return is the fact that he has not returned yet. And if he has not returned yet, because he knows he'll return at the exact right time, he has not returned yet. If he has not returned yet, that means that there's a work for you and I to do. There's a way for us to engage our world. His mission, and his mission ultimately can fall into two categories, although really they're the same, but I'll separate them for clarity's sake. One is to do God's work, and the other one is to do good work. Both of those things. Do God's work, advance his kingdom, preach his gospel, share our faith, love people, serve people, but also do good work. Do meaningful work in your place of employment. If you're a nurse, be the best nurse that your hospital has. If you're an engineer, come up with the best solutions to problems. If you're a paper boy, deliver your paper on time, right? Like those sort of things. 
whatever work you have to do, do it to the best that you can. And in doing so, you're bearing God's image who does good work. And we're about his mission of doing his work and doing good work. And right before the passage that we read, Paul writes this. Let me read it to you in verse 9 through 12. Paul says to the same church in Thessalonica, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And here's how they express their love to each other. Look what he says in verse 11. To aspire to live quietly, which is a little bit of a play on words. What Paul is basically saying here is be ambitious to not be ambitious. And to mind your own affairs, pay attention to your own life, work with your hands, do good quality work as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And then right after this, he goes right into the second coming of Christ. And it's significant that they're back to back. Now, the immediate context was this. There were believers in Thessalonica who were mooching off the rich believers in Thessalonica. They were able-bodied people who could work and should be working, but instead of working, they were taking advantage of their relationships, the new relationships they had with new believers who happened to be wealthy and able to provide for them. And they said, well, hey, this is working out pretty well for me. I'll just live off this person. And Paul said, you know, that will not gain you an audience with people outside of the faith. They will look down on you for that sort of lifestyle. Do good work and work with your hands. That's the immediate context of what Paul's saying here. But, but I also think Paul is connecting something here. Because in the next passage, he's going to talk about something like the second coming of Christ. But in this passage, he talks about something as natural and mundane as living a quiet life and minding your own business and doing good work with your hands. And here's what Paul is saying. Don't let that day rob you of what you're called to do this day. Stay engaged. As long as you have breath in your lungs, it's because there's a work for you to do here. Do God's work and do good work. Engage by loving other people. Engage by living quietly and minding our own affairs, paying attention to our own business. Instead of being busybodies and trying to get in everybody else's business, hey, focus on yourself. Uh, engage with working with your hands. Do good work. That's the original mandate that Adam and Eve were given in Genesis 2, was to work the earth and to be culture makers. That's still a mandate to us today. And then engage by walking properly before outsiders. To bear God's image well means that we engage fully here and now. The Bible ends with a prayer, come Lord Jesus. We are called to pray for Christ's return, but we're not, we're not called to wait around for his return. Don't sit around waiting for his return thinking, just, I'm just going to kind of uh, get in a little bunker with other Christians who think like me and just wait for him to come get me out of this evil place. God has a work for us to do. And the more that we understand the second coming of Christ, it creates within us an urgency to engage this world presently. All right, last point this morning is this. So not only does the second coming of Christ cause us to endure our sorrow differently and engage our world presently, but lastly, it causes us to encourage each other constantly. How many of you just love being encouraged? Isn't it good? to be encouraged. I'm so thankful. This has been an encouraging day for us, and I know we take those cards home. My girls love reading those cards. It will encourage us, and it will strengthen our hearts. I love being encouraged. I can't, I've never had anyone say to me, Pastor David, I got a problem. I'm just too encouraged. <laughs> I got too many people encouraging me. I need, just some le I need less people in my life encouraging me. We all need to be encouraged. And Paul says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is pretty significant. Paul says, everything I've just said, here's, why, here's what it's there for. 
It's not there to, he didn't say attack each other with these words, debate each other with these words, terrify each other with these words, belittle each other, lecture. He doesn't even say evangelize people with these words. He says encourage each other with these words. Encouragement. We all need encouragement. You know, at the heart of every encouragement is essentially a promise. I was thinking about this week. Every encouragement is essentially a promise. Let me give you an example. When we encourage somebody, we may not use these words, but here's what we're saying underneath. I promise things will get better. I promise it's not as bad as it seems. I promise this will never happen again. I promise you're going to learn from this. You're going to be better from this. I promise you'll find someone else, or you'll find a different job, or you'll find something else. And all of our encouragements, basically underneath all of our encouragements is a promise. But what makes a promise true? What makes a promise more than a wish? What makes a promise more than a sentiment? What makes a promise true? I think it's two things. It's the character of the person who makes the promise. And it's the power of the person who makes the promise. Do they have the sort of character that I trust? So if somebody says to me, hey, I can, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to make this happen. But they've proven themselves to have no character and they're a liar, and they're unreliable, then I don't, I don't believe in the promise. On the other hand, if they have great character, and I trust them, but they have no power to actually make sure the promise comes true, then I can't stand on that promise either. You need both. You need the character of the person, and you need the power in the person. And Jesus Christ is faithful, and he's able. And when he went to the cross on your behalf, and when he took the punishment of God upon himself in your place to give you his righteousness, here's what it settles for us. His character. He's good. We sang about this morning. He's good. He's faithful. But then when he walked out of the grave three days later, you know what that settles? His power. His power over sin, hell, death, and the grave. Jesus Christ is the one who makes this promise. And he's faithful and he's able. And this is how we encourage each other as Christians. We don't encourage each other by saying, it's going to get better. It might not get better. You're going to feel better. You're not going to be sick forever. You might be sick until the day you go home. We don't, we don't control that. We don't know that. We can't say to each other, oh, don't worry. Don't worry about that. This will, this will happen. We don't know if this will happen. So what's the one sure promise that we can encourage each other's hearts with? That Jesus Christ will return and that he will reign and that he will rule. And on that day, all the bad things in life will be exposed to have been nothing more than pawns in God's plan to keep his promise and be with his people. Last night, we were coming home from dinner with some friends and we got out of the car and it was late. And as we walked in, Erin called me over and she said, have you ever noticed this about Maddie? Maddie's our five-year-old. Whenever you get Maddie out of the car, she, the first thing she does at night is she looks up for the stars, always. And last night, you couldn't see the stars because of the clouds, you know, Syracuse. <laughs> you couldn't see the stars. And Maddie was saying, I can't see the stars. Where are the, where are the stars? And, and Aaron was remarking to me, she goes, I never look at the stars. I just get out of the car, get Maddie, walk into the house. And I said, I'm the same. I'm, I'm just focused on turning the alarm off, getting in the house, turning the lights on, getting the girls to bed. I don't stop and look at the stars. I think sometimes as Christians, we're so busy with our lives, busy with what we gotta do, our stress, our struggle, and we're looking around and we don't look up enough. We don't look up. Here's how Christians encourage, encourage other Christians. They don't say, hey, look in, you got it, you don't got it. 
That's the heart of the gospel. You don't have it in you. They also don't say, look around, things are going to get better. There's no promise. They say, look up. Look up. He's coming. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. And anybody who tells you they do, run from them. We don't know. But on that day, when he returns, we will say, as the people in Isaiah's prophecy said, he's our God. And we waited for him. And he saved us. And he's faithful. And we'll say Jesus kept his promise in John 14 that I go to prepare a place for the Father, but I prepare it because I'm going to come back and you're going to be with me someday. Listen, friends, what can happen today that can steal your joy when you know that on that day Jesus will keep his promise and he will be with his people forever? Whatever chapter your life is in right now, it's not the last chapter. Here's a really cool thought. Even when you breathe your last, it's not your last chapter. C.S. Lewis has a really neat way of talking about this. He wrote a series of children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia, and the seventh book is called The Last Battle. There's a lot of metaphorical language. There's an Aslan character who's a lion who in many many ways represents Christ. And at the end of The Last Battle, it's all said and done. It's the end of times. And this is what... C.S. Lewis writes in the last battle, he says, And as he spoke, speaking of Aslan, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. Doesn't that sound like the Apostle John trying to write about heaven? He did his best. He couldn't write it. And for us, this end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. That is where our story is heading. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world, in all their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read and which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This life on earth, it's the title and the cover page. And on that day that we're with Christ, it's chapter one. And every day, every chapter will be better than the one before. How's that possible? How can that be true? Because Jesus is faithful, because he's able, and because he's coming. Let's pray together this morning. 